0: Today's episode is brought to you by June Cashmere. It's more than just yarn. June Cashmere works directly with shepherd families in Kyrgyzstan to produce highest quality cashmere yarn. Manufactured with the maker in mind, theirs is a cashmere milled to last. Receive a free pattern when you join their community of makers at JuneCashmere.com. Thank you so much, June Cashmere. And now, here's the show. welcome to episode 229 of the craft industry alliance podcast i'm abby glassenberg craft industry alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business stay up to date on industry news and build connections within our supportive trade association check it out at craftindustryalliance.org today on the show We are talking about creating a lifestyle blog and brand with my guest, Brittany Watson-Jepson. Brittany is the founder and creative director of The House That Lars Built, an award-winning website focused on artful living and making. She's the author of Craft the Rainbow, and her work has been featured in The New York Times, CNN, Vogue, Martha Stewart, and more. She's the mother of Jasper and Felix and lives with her family in Provo, Utah. Brittany Watson Jepsen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's exciting to talk to you. I've admired the house that Lars built for many, many years and it's basically like eye candy at all times is the way that I would think about it. It's always beautiful always colorful and inspiring. And so I'll, I would love to sort of hear about how it all came to be and your vision for it. So let's kind of walk back a little bit. I know you were born and raised in California. Is that right? That's right. Um, so I was born and raised in California in a little beach town
1: called Dana Point. And, um, uh, my grandparents lived in Los Angeles, so we would go up to commute to their house and their house was such a, um, inspiration to me growing up they they cultivated this lovely life and um they even though they lived in los angeles they had goats and like animals and they had this really really beautiful life that was so inspiring to me growing up but also inspiring was you know living by a beautiful beach and um I wasn't much of a beach goer, I was more of an insider, <laughs> uh, like making things inside or reading and, and things like that. So um, my mom was uh, uh, really encouraged us to make things all the time.
0: It sounds like your mom and your grandma were both creative people. Um, and, and so it sounds and you enjoyed the crafting and, and reading were was like home decor, or like decorating that sort of thing. Um, part of your life or part of, it sounds like maybe a part of your grandparents' life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A part of their life and a a huge part of my mom's life. My mom, um, she was an interior designer. She went to school for interior design and then practiced interior design. And then she started a shop um, called En Provence um, in Corona Del Mar Pacific Coast Highway. So it was like this beautiful location. And she really transformed this store into like a a little slice of being in France. Um, My, my uncle, he's a, he's an amazing artist and he painted paintings and um, crafted furniture that she would sell in the shop. So she, I mean, she was so DIY. She would like put hay. I don't know. You know, that technique where you put plaster on walls and put hay in it that they used to do in France or still do. I don't know. So she did that to the walls and like hand painted this decorative painting. And like even to the floor, it was a concrete floor, but she painted like faux rugs on it. And it was just like this really incredibly detailed. It took me to another place. Like I would begged. You know, I would pretend to be sick all the time so I could go with her to the store and I would be sick in the back, you know, eating Sprite or drinking Sprite and eating potato chips. But um it was such a, uh, an impressionable time. But I, it, I think it sunk into me. So learning about these um, techniques and seeing my mom so active and applying beauty in such a beautiful way was so um, inspiring to me. And it's really stuck with me over the years.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like she was also a businesswoman. I mean, she made, you know, she had made a business out of her love of art and of of decorating, which you have as well. So. um.
1: Yeah. And it's so funny because um, I mean, she did that while she had four kids and she started it. I don't even remember how old I was. I I think it was in kindergarten or something and I was the oldest. So there were like five Five, four kids, five and under, and I'm like, that sounds like <laughs> a torture device. Um, somehow she did it for four years before it just became too much um, to handle, even though it was doing really well. But um, yeah, I think I saw her go-getterness at that time, and um, and that. And I just thought, oh, that's just how you do it. Right. (laughs) I guess you just go for things.
0: It just seems normal, you know, when you're when you're little, whatever your parents doing is that's what parents do, you know, so absolutely. So when you were in school, like in um, middle school and high school and things like that, were you taking art classes? Did you think you might want to be an artist or did you have a different idea about your future? Yeah, middle school, high school,
1: you know, not as much. I would take the art classes when offered. Um, and I was really crafty at home, and, and especially middle school and younger. Um, I don't know what – I think I was super focused. I did music. I played the cello, and I played tennis in high school. So I think my hobbies took me elsewhere. Um, and it's, I, I kind of regret that because I wish I could have, like, learned more and more techniques and more proper techniques. Um, but when I went to college, I, I studied art history – And that, for me, was an amazing foundation to, you know, learning how the history of where art comes from, who was doing it, um, you know, I think it was just such a great foundation. But after college, I was, I hadn't, well, I had an internship my last semester of college, and it was at an art museum in Washington, D.C., and I was working in the research center, and I was like, I was loving learning about all these artists. So I was at um, a museum called the National um, Museum of Women in the Arts. So every basically like every single woman artist that existed, I got to like read, learn, read about. Um, And then finally, I was like, what am I doing studying these artists? Like, I need to be getting my hands dirty and making something. So I was feeling this itch to actually be doing it.
0: Okay. Right. And, um, and did you go to college in DC as well? Is that why the internship was in DC? No, I went to college in Utah. Um,
1: and I, I did, I did it, you know, for Washington DC that last semester. Yeah. That last semester. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. and so you felt this itch to, to make things, but didn't have like necessarily formal training. It sounds like as an artist at that point. So what did you do to make that happen? yeah I mean I had
1: taken um at college I took like a calligraphy class and I took a drawing class but it was really like I needed to have like done a lot more with it to really have it be a part of my life and I wasn't spending that time I was spending it doing other things so uh when I was in Washington DC I graduated and then I stayed there and worked for a year and I networked myself into a job at a um at a large hotel company doing interior design. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I'm like so embarrassed of the interview I have, like that I had to get that job. It went something like, Oh, my mom was an interior designer. I read interior design magazines all the time. And I'm like, oh, i like <laughs> cringe at what my, re- like my experience consisted of because it wasn't personal experience. It was all secondhand. But, um, somehow I got it and it put me in this position where I was learning how to do it, um, and learning from other people. And I got exposed to colors and a design library of fabrics. And I got to meet vendors and, um, and how branding works because, It was Marriott Hotels, and they had at the time like a very specific color palette that they worked in. It was red, gold, and blue, and green and bright colors, and you didn't stray from that. So I learned like what goes together, scale of the patterns. Um, And so it was really – and it was really a crucial time because – I learned about that, but then my confidence also grew, and I, I don't know what came over me, but I just thought I was on top of the world, and I was like, I'm going to go to interior design school now and learn it properly, and um, so I did. I applied to some schools and decided to stay in Washington, D.C. to go to interior design school.
0: Wow. So where did you go for that? I don't even know where you go for interior design school.
1: Um, so I went to um Corcoran College of Art and oh, yeah. Design, mm-hmm. which is now a part of George
0: Washington University. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So was yeah, it a good it was,
1: education? Did you
0: feel like you got what you wanted?
1: So it was an interesting program because most people who went to it didn't um they you had to take like a year of requirements before you could or you would take like three years instead of two years. So a lot of people didn't have any experience like myself. So you would take that year of uh, prereqs to gain your drawing skills and painting skills like to draw interiors and color theory and all that. And I think that program was really the effort you put into it is what you got out of it. So I was like, if I'm going to take out so many student loans for this, like it was it's it's insane how expensive it was. I'm going to go for it. So I was. I was taking every class I wanted to. I was kind of working with the teachers to create what I wanted to focus on. I would do internships, programs. I was in this club, that club, this, you know, like I needed to get the experience that was that to make it fully worth it to me. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I totally went for it.
0: Okay. And did you work as an interior designer after you graduated from that program and finally had like a credential? And yeah.
1: So what's funny is that um, the first year, the, so the first summer after that first year, I well, I spent my whole spring break, um, so full week, like, just applying to where for internships that summer. I, I mean, I was in this, like, basically windowless room, like, just making my portfolio and submitting, like, resume after resume after resume. Um, baby, basically cold calling people. And finally I, um, sent my resume and portfolio to Jonathan Adler in New York and Celery Kemble in New York. And they both said yes. <gasps> wow! And, and so I said yes to both of them. So that summer I interned for both of them that summer and like did three, three days at one and two days at another. And it was incredible. It was, um, I, I mean, I learned so much. One of them, I did interior design and one of them, I kind of focused more on product design, which I learned was more of an interest for me. Um, So they gave me assignments that really helped me flourish. Like with Celery Kemble, she gave me, um, she was doing something with Tiffany and co. So she let me like paint this, um, this hand, hand painted plate that they actually turn into a collection of plates at Tiffany and company. And it was like, Really amazing assignments that really helped me grow and were great portfolio pieces and I cannot like I couldn't have had a better experience.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, very cool to get in with like these incredible established designers and just see how their businesses work and get to get your hands dirty. That's so cool. So I know you um, spent some time in Copenhagen. Did you then get a job there?
1: Yeah, so the next summer I um, I did a program. They have a program with the Danish Design School where you can like either study interior design or textile design or pro- furniture design. And I did the textile design program, which was also very amazing. So um, I got to learn so many different techniques um, and worked with textile designers who designed for big fashion houses. So it was like a big eye-opening experience. And then we went on this tour of scandinavia we went to sweden and um finland and um, denmark and norway and got to meet textile designers and see their workshops and it was at this time that i started the house that lars built which was a personal blog um well i started it for a school project at school um and i kind of kept it up for portfolio purposes and then i interned that same summer I was in Denmark I interned for Design Sponge if you remember oh yeah design sponge Grace, which yeah. was which was so like such a a big important blog for I think everyone who was starting to discover what blogs were in the and 2000s what,
0: what was the um, school assignment that had you start a blog
1: um so they didn't have us start a blog but it was called the residential interior design class and um I chose to start a blog because it's when design blogs were starting to come out. And I had learned about them at Jonathan Adler. Someone was like, oh, have you heard of Design Sponge? And I was like, no, (laughs) I haven't. Right. Um, So it was like, I mean, I was like 20, 26 or something. So it was like so impressionable. I wanted to be a part of it, but I didn't know how to start. So Mm -hmm. I started a blog for my fictitious clients I was designing a house for. So And I named the dad Lars because... My dad, his name is Bob, but his alias name is Lars. Like when we'd go to restaurants, he would put his name as, as Lars and we would think it was like the funniest thing. So I named it the house that Lars built because he was building this house and every person in the family represented something that I wanted to be in the house, like music and fashion and, um, and, uh, and interior design. So, um, and so that's what I focused my blog on. So I would put the floor plans I was working on for the, for the family on there or the uh, specific, um, finishes that they, that the bedroom would have, or the son would have, or the daughter would have. And so I would kind of collect, it was like my Pinterest before Pinterest started. Cause this was like 2008. Um, so I would put on things that inspired me or inspired the family, like, oh, their living room's going to look like this. And then I would take photos off of who knows what sites, like no crediting, like I didn't know the wild, wild West. Um, so it kind of, I kept it up and like started blogging every day, just as things that inspired me or things I was working on at school. Um, and like I mentioned it, um, When I went to Scandinavia, I had this column on Design Sponge called um, Copenhagen Correspondence. So I would interview designers in their workspaces and take pictures and report about what I was seeing while I was
0: visiting. That's so cool. So, um, you know, they say that you should do what you love as though it were your job and then it will become your job. And it's so funny that you were like, well, I don't have any clients so I'll make up a fictitious client and then decorate for them as though they were real um, in the hopes that I'll have a client at some point or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, you're giving me a lot of credit. That's not how
1: I was approaching it at the time. But, um, but now I see that that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> but, yeah, I think – having this um like a client who I could design for was so much easier than just like design for nobody you know i needed a personality i needed to tell a story so i had like i mean if you go actually i think i deleted the articles on my blog but i had like meet lars and then i had a picture of lars and then i talked about who he was and like as if i was an actor and had a backstory you know like i would have this full story of their decisions in life, where they came from, and same with each character in the family. Um, so, yeah, I
0: guess I, I guess that, um, I guess that was the smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it was. So, you met your husband, right, when you were in um, Copenhagen, and then eventually the two of you moved back to the US.
1: Yeah. So that summer, I met um, Paul. Um, like the last three weeks, I was there, and we just kind of he took me on these amazing dates, like went to the Royal Danish ballet and uh, we went kayaking on the canals of Copenhagen and we went to lovely restaurants and it was amazing, but I still had a year left of school in, in Washington, DC. So I went back and then we long distance dated for about a year.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then where did you end up settling um did you go to Utah back to Utah? So we got married in California where I'm from
1: and then I um we moved to Copenhagen. Oh. So I was I joined him in Denmark um where his whole family lives and in Copenhagen for so we were there for about 3 years. Oh,
0: okay. Oh wow. Yeah,
1: but I I couldn't work for um a while while they were processing my papers. Um so like you said you um, work for their job you want. So I, because I couldn't work, um, there, I worked on my blog as if it was my job. And at this time, like people still weren't getting paid to blog really that I knew of, or it wasn't like a goal, like, Oh, one day I'll be a huge blogger. Cause nobody really was. Um, so I worked at it, but because I loved it. So I would explore Copenhagen by day. And then at night I would just like work on what I show, what I was working on. And I started doing crafts because our, our wedding, um, we did this really DIY wedding with my mom and my sister. We made these oversized paper flowers, um, and everything had a DIY component. I, I painted tablecloths and, uh, made banners and we, I mean, we did so many, when Paul came from Denmark for our wedding, he had no idea what we were doing. And he came in and our house was literally like floor to ceiling, paper flowers. <laughs> and he, he was, uh, he had no clue what he was getting. Himself <laughs> um, if you didn't know then yeah, like he, he knows now, but. Um.
0: I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, June Cashmere June Cashmere takes pride in offering sustainably, ethically, and transparently produced cashmere yarn in two weights, Fingering and DK, available in 16 rich colors. Working directly with Shepherds in Kyrgyzstan, June Cashmere pays Shepherds fair market value and above for their fiber, and then guides the production of the fiber into highest quality cashmere yarn. Milled in Great Britain, in the British tradition, June Cashmere's yarn produces exquisite stitch definition and drape for garments and accessories that hold their shape. Since only the longest, most uniform fibers are used to create their yarn, you can expect very little pilling over time. June Cashmere is committed to excellent customer service and to building a community of makers. Join them for their Knitting Together Meetup via Zoom on the second and fourth Sundays of each month from 4 to 5 Eastern. Find the Zoom link on JuneKashmir.com. When you join their community, you'll be the first to know of events, classes, and specials, as well as receive information on life in Kyrgyzstan and tips for makers. June Cashmere wants makers to experience success in knitting, so watch for their upcoming knit-alongs and classes on choosing a sweater pattern you'll wear and love and making a sweater that fits. With the holidays approaching, put meaning, purpose, and luxury into your gifting with a gift from June Cashmere. Choose from their selection of garment, colorwork, or one skein kits bundled at a savings to you. Consider their specially curated holiday gift package of beautifully made items meant for makers and non-makers alike, sourced from other socially-minded companies. A gift of their limited-edition mini skein bundles called Kids will make any maker swoon. Ready-made cashmere scarves offer luxury to be worn and worn, or simply opt for the gift of choice with a June cashmere gift card. At June Kashmir, they say it's more than yarn. It's about shepherd families in Kyrgyzstan, producing a yarn worthy of makers and caring for their community. Join them in their journey, won't you? As a special offer to podcast listeners, enjoy $5 off any $75 or more purchase through the end of December 2022 with the code CIA. Purchases of $75 or more shipped for free within the United States. Thank you so much, June Kashmir. And now back to my conversation with Brittany.
1: So yeah, the, the wedding. So people started asking because it was this time wedding blogs were going, mm-hmm. were getting big and Pinterest had come out by this point. So the wedding kind of went bananas and people were asking how, how did you make those paper flowers? So I started to share And that was, like, the first, like, viral um, project that I made. Um, Even though I didn't know it because I didn't know how to read analytics at that time. It took me, like, years to know, like, oh, this project's doing really well. That's why people are coming to my site. Um, So I I started contributing for wedding uh, blogs and other craft blogs. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how it took off.
0: And those flowers were eye-catching and popular because they were colorful, but also the scale was really large. Is that the reason? Yeah. So
1: I, you can see my hands like gesticulating how big they were. It, it was probably like 18 or 24 inches of just one blossom on each, on the center of each table. Okay. Um, and then we had, um, we we had them all around. It was like a garden um, wedding. So they were all around the garden. Um, so I hadn't seen, um, I hadn't seen oversized paper flowers in that type of setting before. Um, I had this, the spark was a J crew catalog, um, that they had, the model had this beautiful, like silk oversized silk flower in it. And I was like, mom, we got to do huge oversized paper flowers. So, uh, we figured out how, how to make them. And, and that's kind of how it, how it started. And were they made from crepe paper? They uh, were made from like a pastel paper, Okay. you know, um, like with like that texture on it. So like a canston pastel paper. OK.
0: All right. Wow. That's cool. Um, so that was the first kind of DIY project that um, entered into the, the house that Lars built and started to take off. And so I, I, I would mark that as kind of a, a turning point in, in your idea of what the blog was. Can you identify other turning points or other things that happened in the blog's life that you were like, Oh, wow, that caught on in a major way and really, you know, changed the game for me.
1: About a year later, um, Prince William was getting married to Kate.
0: And when I was young, I thought
1: I was going to marry Prince William. He I had magazines, I had like, I was ready for it. But alas, it didn't happen. So I was like, you know, if I'm, if I'm not the bride, I'm going to make souvenirs to celebrate this wedding. So I, I went, at the time I was super inspired by like Natalie Latay's beautiful plates from anthropology. If you, she, they're still there. She still comes out with new designs, but like beautiful hand painted ceramic plates. And I um, wanted to figure out how to make it. So I started calling like, manufacturers all across the world is doing so much homework on it. I was calling India and Thailand, like all these places, and finally found a manufacturer in England, which was a little more doable because of the distance and timeline. So I hand-painted some um, plates and got them manufactured and started selling them on a new Etsy site and made mugs and I made um, a processional map on a, I, it was letterpress map that I sold of like the wedding route that they were going to take um, and that went bananas. So I um, I mean, it, because Etsy was still kind of starting and it's like the heyday was, it, it went like it got featured all around the world Like, oh, here's some real wedding souvenirs. Um, And it would always, it would be on every list. It got onto every magazine and every newspaper. And I was stunned. Um, And it was, and it was great. So we, we were so close that we flew over to London for the wedding. And I had made a paper flower head topper. So I sported this like big, okay, again, I'm showing you, it's like, uh, let's see, 15 inches on top of my head, a uh, paper flower. And I wore it around town during the day. And my friend did too, who lives in London. So we were both wearing them and she's a, an amazing salesperson. And she was selling like, Oh, have you seen this mug? And she, she put them in stores and we had, she rented us a booth on Portobello road during the weekend of, of the Royal wedding. So I sold them there and they sold out. Um, and so it's this wild story <laughs> that I didn't have any intention of like keeping up a royal wedding shop. Um, so I, I kind of stopped, but then it kind of flowed into more opportunities from
0: there. Yeah, I was just going to say, once something like that happens and you've kind of struggled twice in different ways, um, but through hard work and, you know, really creative ideas that are different from what other people are doing, um, you know... I, I would assume at that point you start to look at your blog in a new way or look at your business or brand in a new way because, you know, people have gone, they've seen that, maybe they've bought it and now they kind of come back and they're like, what else is is here, right? And there's a new kind of pressure to perform or create after that.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's. I think I was a really slow learner. I, had it been now, I would have been like, oh, we're having our next collection of stuff. And I did, I did, I like hand painted these oven mitts. I really like kitchen accessories, even though I hate to cook. I don't know. So I came out with a nut, like a hand painted calendar and these oven mitts and those did really well too. Um, but I didn't know how to necessarily channel that into more products. Like, cause it wasn't my, um, I didn't make a business plan. Like it wasn't like something I was aiming to do again. If I had done it now, I would have done it a lot differently. I would have just kept the momentum going, but what it did was, um, it introduced me like Liberty of London was like, Oh, Hey, um, can you show us more things? So I flew to London and showed them more things. And my paper, handmade paper flowers got sold with at terrain. um, who's owned by urban outfitters. And, um, and then I later did a licensing with a dinnerware company and they still have it. It's called twig, New York. So I did three dinnerware collections. Um, and it, it like, honestly, I was so slow on the uptake that it was like, Oh, you're interested. Oh, let me figure this out. But all the money that I had earned from that, from the Royal wedding, I went to pay off my student loans rather than investing into the business, which would have been a bigger payout ultimately. But um, <sighs> I, I'm not a natural business person, and so it was like I didn't quite know. Had I had this resource like your podcast and, you know, other things, I, I think I would have done it a lot differently.
0: And were there opportunities that you pursued because somebody reached out after seeing you got all this publicity in these different ways and it sounds like these companies like Liberty and Terrain, et cetera, you know, they start to contact you and say, we love this look. Can you do more or show us more? Um, but were there, were there ones that kind of, you know, came your way and then just really weren't the right thing and just, you know what I mean? We're kind of like a false start or you felt like, Oh gosh, that was awful and painful. (laughs) I won't do it again. You know? Oh,
1: I'm sure there are. So, well, there's some heartbreaks too. Right. So, um, so Vivian Westwood reached out and wanted a paper flower, like a big paper flower to potentially do their window displays. And I was, I mean, beyond, I was over the moon, but I could not figure out how to transport. I was in Denmark at the time and I had you can just go online and order a box like I didn't know how to navigate the system there. So I like broke the flower in half and I was like, glue it when you get back together. And I sent it in this box. So there and they never contact me again. So I never heard back. Um Um, and then I mentioned Liberty, like, yeah, I flew to, to meet with their buyer, but it fizzled from there. Um, so it was, I think it was just exciting to be like, oh, they're interested, but they didn't like, I didn't have anything new really at that time. So it was a lost opportunity. Um, again, had I known, oh, I needed to make a, follow up on the royal wedding and do more products or what products are you interested in and have like a good range of products. I think um that would have been smart.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it's helpful to hear because, you know, from the outside, it can appear like you go from success to success. And, you know, I know that from the inside, that's just never true. There's always these opportunities that either you messed it up, or they just changed their mind or whatever. And I think it's comforting for for folks to hear like, that's the reality of how this works. And, you know, right? Well, even
1: like I also mentioned terrain, and I had I developed this technique of paper flower, that was just not sturdy enough. It was like, I'm pretty sure I don't they never mentioned anything, but I'm pretty sure the leaves just fell off. You know, I'm like horrified at what I they bought them. So that's cool. But I'm horrified thinking of the craftsmanship like, oh, there's no way I didn't even have spend enough time like really developing my true style to like know how to give them something that's like solid So while it was an amazing opportunity and they bought this like very large order for me, I didn't get a follow up order, but they did. They did end up buying my calendar or some note cards. I can't remember now, but so there was a follow up order, but not for paper flowers. But, you know, if you if I had done it like really incredibly well there probably would have been a follow. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. So I mean, I I had similar things happen to me. And I think other people, it's very relatable. So appreciate you sharing some of that vulnerability there, you know, with some things that didn't quite work so well. So my my guess is that when Instagram, you talked about Pinterest and the way that Pinterest helped your wedding photos really get, you know, a lot of traction. But um, when Instagram you know, came on the scene, you're great at Instagram and it seems like would have been a really natural fit. So I don't know if you have thoughts about the early days of Instagram or, or also maybe your Instagram strategy now where you have, you know, a, a huge following there and really use that platform well.
1: Again, I'm a very slow learner. I did not view Instagram as this great opportunity to showcase my work at the time. And I've since deleted a lot of the ones from the early days because it was like, oh, I'm in San Francisco. Here's a really cool light post, you know, or here. And here's like a ton of filters on it. And you can hardly see what the actual colors were. So I fell victim to all of that, Um, maybe like some of you out there, too. Um, And it took me it even took me a long time to figure out that I was going to be doing this, the house that Lars built for a living. So I didn't have a brand. Um, I didn't have like, what is the house that Lars built? What are, what's, what's the aesthetic of it? What are the colors? What are the words that describe it? Cause I think if I had, had that long-term vision I would have approached it differently but I think over time and we know that the landscape of Instagram started out like this like taking a like sort of very insta right instantaneous like here's a picture and then it grew into like a really professional way um and that was really fun too because I was making lots of projects and then I um One, I think one project that stands out is one day I was like, you know, I want to do something fun, like a creative challenge on Instagram. So I posted a picture of some craft supplies. I think it was um, my crate papers in a rainbow order. I was like, here's here's some pretty craft supplies in rainbow order. And I called it Craft the Rainbow. And I was like, oh, you know what? While I'm doing this, let's do 30 of these every day for, um, you know, for a month and see how it goes so every day for the month i did a new craft supply in rainbow um
0: order and it went bananas again everybody like everybody <laughs> loves craft supplies and everybody loves a yeah. rainbow so it's an it's a natural i mean it's yes. just luscious you just love you know what looking you at want
1: that, that structure
0: you do yeah
1: yeah. So I started you know, putting that and that was really fun. And it kind of like spiraled from there and it grew. And then the next year I did a project called dress the rainbow where I would dress in um, like all blue and stand against a blue background and invite a, somebody else to come in the photo with me. And so it started out with pink, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple. So we did that for 60 days, which was crazy um so that was dress the rainbow and so because of that first project craft the rainbow um and it how it kind of spiraled from there i ended up focusing um i got i got a book offer, not necessarily for that, but that's what it turned into after that.
0: Okay, yeah. And that's with Abram. So um did they reach out to you? Was that was Melanie Fallex still there? I don't I don't actually know. No, she wasn't No, she okay. was not at that time. Okay. So they, they reached it sounds like they reached out to you to do a book and, and initially what it maybe was a different idea or what you weren't sure what the idea would be. Yeah, it was like do you have any what would you what type of book would you like to do? And it was like,
1: oh shoot. And I still hadn't really like nailed down what exactly is the house that Lars built? Like what is, what's his brand? So I think there was a lot of discovering that I was doing at this time. Um, so, so one of the days was craft but One of them was a book about paper flowers. One, I, I mean, mm. I gave so many, I, I got an agent where I could like kind of talk through some things. Yeah. And um, there had already been a couple of, um paper flower books that had already come out yeah. at that time. And so she was like, maybe focus on something else. Which I kind of I'm kind of bummed at because there were many that came out afterwards too. Right, that, you know, I, I would have loved to have tried it. But um anyway, so I decided to focus on craft the rainbow and and it was really a fun project because I got to shape like this rainbow experience. Like um I think I have one here. Um where like as you're flipping through, you see the pages turn from red oh, to orange to yeah. yellow. I wanted you to very clearly see the the pages, so you could see that rainbow from the outside. And then Abrams was so wonderful to work with because I they were so detail oriented. Like yeah. so there's a little gold thread at the top, and then um, I got to really take my time. And photography is very important to me, so I got to work with my friend Shante Vaughn, who is an absolute genius photographer who lives in New York and she made those images come to life and her lighting's incredible and um it was really a dream project uh but also a nightmare project
0: <laughs> what was a nightmare about it
1: um i think i didn't quite anticipate like i'd never done a book before i didn't know what type of structure like yeah. time frame like i knew overall like oh it's due in a year but i didn't know how I'm. I don't know if I'm the only one, like creative out there who's like, I don't know how to structure my time.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're definitely not the only one. And and writing a book, you know what I found with that is is they don't really give you like a breakdown of like, okay, yeah, it's two in a year. That means if we need twenty projects, you need to finish a project, you know, every two and a half weeks for the next year or whatever it is you know they don't kind of break that down and then every they don't just email you every two and a half weeks and be like did you do it let's see it okay next one like you know they don't it's just like go ahead like they just let you go yeah like time is so (laughs) nebulous in my mind and had they
1: she gave me uh my editor was Shauna um Mullins and she gave me this like book map and I was like oh that's cool but like it didn't I don't know. It wasn't quite the time that I needed. So like, had I thought like, Oh, um, I did 40 projects. So like, Oh, they thought of it in that way.
0: Right.
1: It would have been a lot smarter. And I was honestly, I really kicked it into high gear. It was due in February and I kicked it into high gear in like October, which was not enough time. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's brutal. It, it's hard. It was so brutal. And then, My friend Shantae flew out for two weeks or 10 days to to photograph everything in 10 days. Um, And it was, oh my gosh, I, I can't even tell you the headache it was. Like there were nights I slept at my studio and it was just like so many people on board. So many wonderful people came to help. So it was like this true community experience, but also like I have so much... Uh, trauma from it. right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) probably self made trauma, because I didn't know how to structure my time. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so after that book came out, I mean, you know, I think that there's an argument to be made today, in, you know, 2022, almost 2023, that, you know, you could self publish, or why go with a publisher, you know, maybe it's not worth doing. And, maybe it's never going to pay, you know, you the what you, what what it was worth or whatever, but but there is still i think a lot of cachet that comes with having a book published by a mainstream publisher. Plus the experience of working with their team is also really instructive. Um, for you as an independent maker working alone most of the time. So I don't know if you felt like um, there was a sort of sense of legitimacy or something like that that was lent to your business after the book came out or um, if it changed your your perspective in any way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the legitimacy was important because I started out as a blogger, right? Even though I had like legit education and I had legit um, experience, work experience, but to the public, nobody knew that. I was just someone who was releasing DIY tutorials online. So I think there was a like an importance to me to have th- th- like a stamp of approval almost. You know, like, oh, this, this um, publisher wants to. And I love the books they were doing. Um, and I knew it would be a beautiful ex- book. And that was my main goal was to create a really beautiful craft book. And um, so, yeah, I, I was expecting it. Do you remember the book, Julie and Julia? Oh, yeah. With Julia Child. Um, I was expecting this, like, this romantic, like, editor, uh, author experience where we, like, come together and what's this book going to be about? And so I was surprised when she was like, okay, do, do your thing. And then come and present me with the findings after. So um, I wasn't quite like the relationship I was ex- expecting. Um, but I, I think that's how all books are mostly. So, But she would give feedback on um, uh, like how doable it was or can everybody find these craft supplies? Or, you know, there were like some logistic questions and even figuring out how long the book should be or what exactly the book should look like with their book designer. Um, So there were some things afterward once I turn it in, but um, it was a little bit different than I thought it was going to be.
0: And, you know, I wonder about blogging. As you said, you started out as a blogger um, and you've kept your blog, you know, going all of this time, even when Instagram, I think probably the pull of Instagram can feel like that's the place um, but, you know, I think as some of these social media giants start to run into trouble, maybe, or at least be pretty frustrating um, at times, you know, the, the blog is still very much a vibrant Uh, publishing platform, even though it's been so long now, you know, over like 15 years. Um, So what do you what is your perspective, I guess, on on blogging now and the future of blogging?
1: Well, um, DIY blogging, I think the the nature of it is that there needs to be somewhere to hold the information, there needs to be a place to have the tutorial or to keep the template and we started selling our um, templates on the shop. Uh, we uh, we made an, a shop um, to, to start selling them because we had been providing free templates for so many years, and finally we're like, oh, we just need to monetize that. So we started doing that. Um, but yeah, like you need a place for to go and find these these tutorials or have a search word you know to not just on Instagram where you scroll like how far back can you scroll to find hopefully you finding something so it's not Instagram's fun when um, you know for like a true influencer who's taking pictures of themselves um, and maybe you're monetizing that but uh, because we also have resources. We needed, we still need our website. So, um, but as far as the future goes, I think there still is a place for websites. I do think that the day of personal blogging as I miss it so much where it was a little less, you know, streamlined and super fun and casual, like people aren't coming for those casual experiences to blogs. They're definitely staying on Instagram or TikTok. Um, and I cannot wrap my mind around getting onto another platform and having to invest my time there like TikTok. So I guess that shows my age and willingness. But um I think there's always a place for websites and blogs, especially when it's when resources are needed. So if you've got a resource for embroidering or sewing, like there is definitely a place for for you, um,
0: on a website. And who is on your team now? Cause I get the sense that instead of it just being Brittany, it's now we, like we are doing, making these decisions and building a shop and, you know, figuring out the brand and all of, and different partnership opportunities. Um, and we can talk next about one you have coming up on TV potentially, um, but, But who is who's like making up the house that Lars built as a company now?
1: Yeah. So the timeline kind of started. um, I went full time in 2013 and then I got um, a help. I've had um, my first employee in 2014. I got a business partner in 2015 who really put structure into place you know, systems and structure timelines. (laughs) So she was super crucial for that and making things, monetizing things more. And then we got, um, someone to help make the projects, somebody to, um, do the newsletter. Um, and so now in 2022, I have a team of six. So I have, um, a photographer, videographer, who is also our shop manager, who is also our studio manager. So uh, they wear many hats. Um, I have an accountant, a part-time accountant. And then um, I have a part-time studio assistant who helps with craft projects sometimes or runs errands and cleans up, gets the photo shoots ready. And then we have a maker um, who makes the projects and who's also our content editor who writes the blog posts. And then we have a designer who um we do licensing with companies, so we're coming out with a swimsuit line, a planner line, and so she's the one working on that, and then we have a project manager. but this is a funny time for me because about two weeks ago, I was like, "Oh my gosh, you know I spent and I've been thinking about this for a while." And I haven't really told anybody yet, but um I I just been feeling this like I spend my time managing a team. I was just right gonna now. say,
0: now you're the CEO.
1: And like I've mentioned, I'm not very like business is not super an interest for me. Um, I'm not like reading business books in my downtime. I'm not listening to business podcasts, like I'm not, it's just not my interest. And so here I am, like. Leading a business over a pandemic, Mm -hmm. a potential recession, like the, like the things I'm spending my time on are not how I would prefer to spend my time on. So recently in the last two weeks, I was like, you know what, things have got to change. And so things are changing right now. I'm, I'm, um, I, I was like, I love my team, like my team, like I, I, cry thinking about losing them, but I'm, I'm encouraging them to find <laughs> new jobs right now. And, and they have, um, for, the, I'm going to keep, um, a couple because I, I still need some help and cause we have so much going on still, but, um, we're just going to restructure how we use their time.
0: I sometimes think that, you know, what can happen and, And you're not alone in this when you have a successful aesthetic and brand and things like that, and you start to hire and then you end up just behind the computer and managing people all day long. And I sometimes think, well, maybe the better thing to do is hire a CEO, like hire a professional CEO and you remain creative director and owner of the business. But the CEO is running the business and you get to do the things that only you can do, you know, so it's interesting.
1: Yeah. I think that's a wonderful Yeah, And I think that's what I was trying to do when I brought on my business partner. Um, but then I think it's tricky for me. And I don't, I love to talk with other people about this because my blog and my brand is so connected to me Yeah, that I was really having a tough time with, um, with separating it or like, like I wanted her to make all the business decisions, but when it came down to it, it was really hard to let her do those things because I also needed to make those decisions, right so um, and maybe that was the nature of our partnership. I don't know, but um ultimately, it was really tricky to figure out how she could have the autonomy, but also I wanted it,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you are not alone in that too, and. When you build a brand that's built around you as a human being, um, it can be very difficult to release any control because it's the the, the face of the brand is your face. Um,
1: yeah. And I think if it was like much bigger, like to the point where it was like a full, like huge brand, I think I would be much more comfortable doing that. But I think we weren't quite at the at the financial benchmark, I needed to be like, I need to, I want to pay you all this money, to, um, to do it, even though I still wanted all this control over it. Mm-hmm. So it was, I don't know, I, I, still don't know how to, how to do it. But I'm at the point where um, I want to take things slower, mm-hmm. do some more creative things myself, um, not hustle so much because i ended up hustling so much to pay my team right rather than do things cuz i really wanted to do them
0: yeah 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 it's so interesting and in that the magic of like the the royal wedding collection and and the things that really come from your heart um gets pushed down because you have to do other things in order to to make the the you know bottom line work and things like that so yeah it's tough it's that's a it's a tough spot to be in and I want to make sure we talk about um this television opportunity um so maybe you can just tell us a little bit briefly about what it's all about
1: yeah so um earlier this year um my family and I we participated in an episode of a home renovation tv show it's gonna be on a streaming and cable network And so um, we renovated four rooms of our home, our kitchen, the kitchen in our studio, which is down in the basement of my home and my son's room and the staircase of our house. And I mean, it's one of those classic home renovation TV shows where it's like it's done it in like a very short amount. Like we had three months to take it from nothing because we moved into this house like two years ago. There was literally nothing in the home. There were no bathrooms, no kitchen. Like we bought it stripped, so we've had to do a lot of work to this house. But once the, once we signed the contract to do the show, it was like, oh shoot, <laughs> we got to make things happen. So we had a very short amount of time to make it happen. And but what's cool about it is that I wanted to infuse it with a lot of uh, my. Uh, you know, like my mom and my, like the things I've taken away from my, my ancestry really. And the show is about old homes. So, um, and what's cool about it is that the people who built our home, our home was built in 1992. um, But it was modeled after one from the 1800s in this town called Nauvoo, Illinois, which is where a large portion of our, our church my church history comes from. So the the house is like the floor plan is similar to those that lived in Nauvoo and I have family like my great 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 grandparents lived in Nauvoo. So it's kind of this full circle experience that I was able to tell on the show and um, and talking about my great 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 grandmother, Patty Sessions, who was a midwife who who was a pioneer crossed the plains, delivered babies. Um, and the strength that I found from her, like knowing where she came from and where my house is designed from. So it was a really cool experience that I'm
0: excited to see brought to life on this show. Yeah. So we'll have to keep an eye out on your Instagram where I'm sure you'll share all about it when it's ready to to be aired. So that's exciting. And I look forward to watching it. And I also know you have a craft along going on um that has a charity component so maybe you can tell us about that before we get to your recommendations
1: yeah sure so
0: yeah we're in the midst of this um we call it the lars
1: craft along and we started it last year so last year we made like this nativity set we brought on guests every week on instagram live to join me in painting this nativity set and then this year we're doing these embroidered plush ornaments um where we print, we have a technique for printing onto like a normal printer um, onto fabric. So we print a picture of uh, an ancestor or family member and then embroider onto them. Mm. And it's been so fun. So yesterday I got to embroider on Instagram live with Mary Inglebright who is absolutely. Oh my gosh. So cool. So cool. And we just have wonderful embroidery artists. We have like a mix of celebrities and embroidery artists, and crafters, and a couple contestants from making it the NBC show. Yeah, who I love, Robert Mahar. Oh yeah, Amber from Damascus Love. Um, So it's been super fun, and we're trying to raise money for Nest, which is a nonprofit that supports women the handmaker economy around the world. So those in America, but also those who've been affected in Ukraine and Afghanistan. Uh, we're trying to raise five thousand dollars, and we can do that by direct donations to Nest, um, buying our ebook, which has the tutorial from for these ornaments. And number three, we're going to be auctioning off the ornaments that our guests are making at the end of this. Nice.
0: That's lovely. Yeah. yeah. It's been so fun. Yeah, that's great. And I love collaborating with so many people and bringing lots of different people in to raise awareness for a charity. I think that's great through through making. So um, so people should definitely go check that out while it's still going on. And you have a couple of recommendations. And your first one is Fair. that's F-A-I-R-E magazine. And it's so funny because I had a guest not too long ago, recommend the same magazine. So I definitely need to go check it out. I've never seen a copy.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, that's so funny.
0: It's honestly
1: exquisite. So I um, I got to go to France in September for like a 40th birthday with my friend who's an amazing um, tour guide who does tours to Paris. Her name is Eva Jorgensen. And she, we got to meet Ruth who um, – in Provence where she lives who started this magazine and is the editor of this magazine and we've been at online friends for years but meeting her in person was like this joyous amazing experience she highlights the most amazing incredible people in this magazine um, and with beautiful photography and it's like storytelling at its finest like I haven't seen such a beautiful collection of makers. Like I cannot speak
0: highly enough about it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that sounds amazing. I am going to go get myself a copy because I have to see it. Um, And then you also recommended some watercolors that you recently bought from, I think it's pronounced Marin Montague. I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, so he's this French artist in Paris and he
1: uh, he's a true delight. If you go follow him on Instagram because like He's um, he's this watercolor artist and then he sells these little packs of watercolors in his beautiful shop in Paris. And it was this little travel watercolor set and it's so beautiful. Um, And I'm hoping it'll inspire me to start making soon because like I said, I'm down, I'm hopefully going to have more time to make things. So that's my hope. It's this, so buying beautiful craft supplies and art supplies always yeah. know, invigorates the soul.
0: Oh, absolutely! Um, and then you also wanted to recommend some scissors that you actually are producing now as part of your brand.
1: Yeah, so we got to do a partnership with Fiskars, um, the the scissors and craft company, um, and it's been, it was a long time collaboration in the, in the making. And we got to put a a pattern onto the classic orange, you know, scissors and also like design um, and make the, the blades are like a rose gold and it has this floral pattern Mm. and maybe it's so tacky to promote your own things. But I'm like, I scissors, I have this love affair with scissors. And the fact that I got to do this is like, I am so over the moon about it. Um, and they're at like Joanne and Michael's and, that's so and everywhere. Cool. But it's like, honestly, maybe one of the coolest things I've got Yeah, I was
0: going to say, if that happens, you absolutely need to promote it. So I think that's <laughs> great. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoy talking to you. You're so wonderful. Thank you so much, Abby, for having me. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by June Cashmere. June Cashmere invites you to share in supporting Kyrgyzstan's shepherd families while experiencing the joy of making with their cashmere yarn. Create exquisite garments that are soft, warm, and lightweight in cashmere milled to last. Join June Cashmere's community of makers at junecashmere.com. Thank you so much, June Cashmere.